Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Praise God. Jesus is Lord. God is good. His mercies endure forever. Spring has sprung. Isn't it wonderful? Well, we're grateful that the Lordship of Christ is not dependent on the faithfulness of the seasons or the um, conformity of our circumstances, but Jesus is Lord. Amen? At all times. And um, he knows what we need and when we need it. And in his infinite sovereign wisdom, he has seen fit for us to have snow in springtime. I'm not trying to win friends and influence. I'm just declaring the sovereignty of God, rejoicing in his goodness and his mighty power. Truly he is God. We can't predict what he's going to do, eh? He is not bound by anyone's wishes or wants. He is God. And we give thanks that we have senses to complain of the cold. In all things, we give thanks. Um, it's good to see everyone. Um, I'm back off compassionate leave, and I praise God. Thank you all for your prayers, um, for the family. The Lord definitely heard your prayers and um, was very faithful and continues to be. And um, so, yeah, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm greatly encouraged, greatly encouraged that um, God truly is good all the time. And um, even as we remember our brother Andrew Carnegie and um, Mark, um, whose brother passed away, Slider Cuts. What's his surname again? McIver, that's right. Because if I say Slider, people aren't going to remember who that is. Um, Mark McIver. Um, know that as we pray for them, that God works powerfully. Um, and I testify of that. And so um, let's continue to keep them in prayer. And um, do so with the fact that we are assured of the resurrection, cleared in, clear in our minds. It's been um, a blessing to be able to just receive the ministry of the word over the last few weeks as we've been going through 1 Corinthians 15 and just really be greatly encouraged at the truth of God's word. And we have to remember that this is God's word that we're dealing with. This isn't, you know, some lecture where we're sitting down listening to ideas and theories. This isn't some scenario where we're being presented with, you know, speculation or postulation. This is the word of God. And to the word of God we say, amen, so be it, let it be so. Because there is no word of God that will go forth and return void or unaccomplished. Every word of God will fulfill, it will fulfill all that he has intended for it to accomplish. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages my heart. 
that puts fire in my soul on a winter spring day. <laughs> yeah, work that out. <laughs> because God is true to his word. All that he says is true. You can take his word to the bank. Now, I'm not preaching prosperity gospel right about now. But I'm just trying to show you that God's word is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Do you agree with that? Are you sure? Listen, that needs to be real for us. I remember growing up in the faith, you know, one of the things that was really um, brought home to me as a Christian growing in the faith was just the reality that God's word is his will. And what he wills, it happens. It is done. And so let us be confident. Let us be encouraged as we consider God's word. In an, in an age when we're overloaded by information, I mean, you got Google, Wikipedia, YouTube. You, I mean, we're overloaded with information at our disposal, at, at our fingertips. So much information that has been even previously concealed. I remember watching a, a program about Google and Google Books and how they were basically going around and just going to libraries all over the world and scanning in books, reference works, everything, and just creating this huge online catalog of books that could be accessed and purchased and lots of these works, these rare works that you had to travel to go to the, the library and go into the dungeon and they would take it out of the cellophane. All of these works are being made available online. Information overload, flooded with information to the point where we can look at the scriptures and take it as, ah, it's just more information. This is God's word. This is more than information. The word of God is spirit and it's life. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does its work as the Holy Spirit wields it, swings it. And so as we consider the assurance of the resurrection today, we can take great assurance. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. 50 to 58, and we're going to see four particular points by which we are assured. Paul has established that the resurrection is true. Not only are we to expect a resurrection, but we can expect a resurrection because Jesus is risen. And so as Paul brings it home, the fact that we have a resurrection to look forward to. He endeavors to give great assurance to our hearts. And so, let me read and then pray. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold! I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body, imperishable, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Heavenly Father, hmm, you are so good forevermore. You are great, and even that is an understatement. And as we come before you today, we just set our hearts to meditate on your truth and to receive encouragement, to receive instruction, to receive inspiration as your spirit ministers the truth of your word to our hearts. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this privilege of being able to have your word shared publicly and to engage with it. We thank you for the privilege of even being able to have relationship with you through Jesus Christ in order that our ears and our eyes, our hearts will be opened to what you would have to say. Speak to us today, Lord. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen us in you, I pray. For the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Assurance. Assurance is a positive declaration. A positive declaration. So someone's giving you an assurance, they're going to be making a positive declaration. But the assurance that we get from this today is going to be more and is intended to be more than just us being able to give a thumbs up to something positive. Because assurance means more than that. It's a positive declaration intended to give confidence. Intended to give confidence. Sometimes we might ask someone for some assistance. And they give us all the assurances in the world. Maybe they're going to meet us. And we hear them, I'll be there, no problem. I'll be there five minutes early. And we hear the assurances, but in our hearts we lack confidence. Because certain people, when it comes to timekeeping... 
we're like, hmm, I hear the assurances, but the person who's given me this assurance really don't cause me to have great confidence. We can't say that about God. Because God is God all by himself. Killing you with cliches today. He doesn't need anybody else. God is absolutely consistent with himself. Furthermore, the scripture tells us, let God be true and every man a liar. And so God's intention is that we, we gain confidence. A confidence in him, through him, and for him. As we consider the reality of the resurrection. And there are four points at which we're able to gain confidence in this. Firstly, flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Paul, speaking to believers as he intimates at the beginning of verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, the word used there for brothers could be brothers and sisters, so ladies don't feel left out. Brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It can't be done. Some of us will be relieved by that because our bodies are failing and we have loved ones whose bodies have failed. And we're able to be encouraged that it's not reliant upon our bodies the health and strength of our bodies, or even the suitability of our bodies in preparation for the resurrection. Now, let me tell you how one way that practically makes a difference. I say, you know what, when I die, don't waste money burying me, you know. Just cremate me. And certain people, like some of you, you hear that and you're like, whew, no, that's a bit deep. What about the resurrection? Like, don't you need your body in the resurrection? Or what about those people lost at sea? And don't they need their body in the resurrection? No, you, you have to be buried. You can't be cremated. I'm like, look, you know what? On a practical level, cemeteries are running out of space. Space is getting more and more expensive. And so, don't waste money. Because flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom. Amen? Amen? Let's keep it real out here. We have practical wisdom being communicated to us. It's not dependent on our bodies. It's not dependent on the suitability. You know, we say, oh, when we get our resurrection body, if I lost a limb, am I only going to have like but a partial body? Or am I going to be like I was when I was 21? Ripped, <laughs> teeth straight, everything. It's not, you know what? Our bodies don't inherit the kingdom. Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. And so, we appreciate that. You know what? It's not reliant upon our state of health or well-being. It's not affected by the way in which we died. 
and the, the condition of our body or what happens to our body afterwards. And he elaborates on this. Verse 52, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There's nothing imperishable about our bodies right about now, but it will be imperishable at the resurrection. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Some would say there's a suggestion there that we are clothed over, we are, we are spiritually, now let me, let me break this down, this might help. You understand and appreciate, I'm sure, right, that we as individuals are what, what, what's known as tripart beings. There is three parts to our being, yeah? Um, we are a spirit. We are a spirit. We possess a soul and we live in a body. Yeah? All right. So when the idea of being clothed over or the, the perishable putting on imperishable, our spirit continues to exist and will receive a new house, habitation, living space. And as Rich T mentioned last time, it's going to be a completely transformed version. It's not even going to be like, you know, you get recycled paper. And it's, it's paper, and you can use it, but it's kind of got that secondhand feel to it. Am I lying? And it's got that kind of, kind of, I would say, crusty kind of feel to it that now, maybe they've kind of, you know, things have moved on and you can buy a real silky, lovely recycled paper. I don't know how that works now. But that's what I associate with recycled paper. It's kind of got that used feel to it. Not with our bodies. We will be transformed. And so let's be encouraged by that. And... As, as, we, as, as we drive to the point, as we drive to the crescendo, verse 58, as we drive to that, it helps inform us as to how we live our lives. Because if I were to give this message a subtitle, it would simply be this, go hard till you go home. That's what Paul's saying in verse 58. And so knowing that, you know what? I can give my body, utilize my body, my, allow my body to be used by God to the fullest extent and extreme, even if it means death, even if it means mutilation, as so many Christians around the world are facing for the profession of their faith in Jesus. That's okay, because I'm going to get a new one. So I don't have to be precious. I don't have to be cagey about how I live my life as a Christian for the glory of Christ. Amen? Some of us, oh, I can't go out and do no leaflet drop, you know, because I don't want to get a cold. And I'm like, well, wear warm clothes. And if we get a cold, even if it kills us, we're going to get a new body. It's all good. It doesn't matter. 
And this has motivated believers throughout history. Those who were burnt by Nero at the stake, Nero would use Christians as streetlights, cover them in tar, set them alight along his roads. And as people went along the roads, they would hear the voice of singing as the Christians burned. Why? Because of the assurance that flesh and blood doesn't inherit the kingdom. We will be changed. And it tells us in verse 52 that this change will take place in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye. It could come at any time. And so we're able to be encouraged that God who is in control, according to his will and purpose, according to his timing, will cause us to change. It's not a long, drawn-out process, but it will be instantaneous. Now, some translations change that word twinkling. They, they render that word as blink. And, um, and, I, and I set you this challenge. The next time you look in the mirror, see if you're able to witness your eye blink. Yeah? So look in the mirror, or you can even try it now if you've got a camera phone or whatever. I mean, at least if it's decent anyway. It's not on some long time lag. And look at yourself and see if you can see yourself blink. I've tried it several times. <laughs> no, seriously. I'm not, I'm not even talking as a child. Just the other day as a big man. It's going to be instantaneous. Now, Paul tells us that in verse 51, and some of you are probably thinking, hmm, you missed verse 51, what's going on? Intentional. Paul tells us that this is a mystery. He says, I tell you a mystery. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, particularly, which he uses often, um, throughout the New Testament in his letters. What he's basically saying is, I tell you a revelation. We might understand it um, more easily in that sense, in terms of what he's trying to convey. I tell you a revelation. So I'm telling you something that was previously concealed, but has now been revealed by God for us to appreciate and understand. Some of us are familiar with those terms when we talk about revelation. Another one of those experiences coming up in church was the expectation that as you went to church, you were going to receive revelation knowledge. Now, when we talked about revelation knowledge in those days, we were not just talking about information that is new to us personally. So I'm going to receive a revelation of God that I never personally knew, but, as, but it's been known. It's been understood. Mm -mm. The revelation knowledge was going to be based on the fact 
that the minister, the man of God, had been in the throne room. Been in the throne room. And, and, he'd, and he'd received the word, a revelation from the Lord to bring in that moment, such as has never been heard in this earth. And one of the results of that was that people would get elevated, or we would try and elevate ourselves. I remember praying earnestly for revelation knowledge. I wanted to bring some, Brian's laughing because he knows. I wanted to bring some word from God that was never heard of before, that everybody would be talking about. Well, I've since learned if it's new, it ain't true. You see, the canon of Scripture has closed and God has spoken, past tense. And so there is no new revelation of God. Jesus says, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus, the express image of God, he is the revelation of God. And so we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have received it. And yet, for us as individuals, as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, and as we walk with the Lord, we should expect to receive revelation, lowercase r. Things that we didn't understand about God, knowing God in ways that we didn't know him before. If you're walking with Jesus and you feel like you, you, you know, your Christian life's all sussed out, then you're sadly wrong. The in inexhaustible God is such that he will, through his word and by the working of his spirit, consistent with all that he has said previously, help us as individuals to grow in our knowledge of him. That was a digression. Forgive me. Paul here, disclosing this mystery, is given a revelation that has been granted to him by reason of Christ. It stems from Christ and is informed by Christ. And he says this, behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to give you a revelation. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Second point of assurance. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. No believer is going to be left out of the resurrection. No child of God. I tell you this, brothers, he says in verse 50. Brothers and sisters, this is an assurance for you who believe. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, I don't have time to elaborate fully on this, but one of the things that this verse does is it does away with the notion of the Christian fearing missing the rapture. The genuine Christian, the one who is truly a believer, ought not to fear, well, when Jesus comes, will I go? I remember when they had the big storm in, in 87. I think it was 87. It's lights out, power down, Everything. And I woke up and it was pitch black. And the house was in darkness and the neighborhood was in darkness. 
There was no light. And I swear that I missed the rapture. Is anyone there? Lord, no. No believer is going to miss out. Now, these verses do intimate to us, they do communicate to us that occasion when the Lord will call his people to be with him. And this is elaborated on in 1 Thessalonians verse 4. If you would like to turn there with me. Paul elaborates on this. He says, but we do not want you to be, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 to the end. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, huh, basis, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those who have died in Christ. Yeah? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed or go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, no believer will be left, including those who have died in Christ. Those who have died in Christ will join us in the resurrection of the saints. Or should I say, we will join them if we are alive at the time of Christ's coming. Because this is what Paul is communicating. Look, history is going to go on. The church is going to continue to grow. People will continue to come into faith, um, come into relationship with Jesus through faith. And there's going to come a point in time when there will be a, a group of Christians who are alive at the coming of the Lord. Some people have used the term rapture. Some people have used the term calling away. Term translation. Speaking of that moment when the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive, we won't have to wait to die before we, but we will be changed even whilst we are alive. Instantly. Some of you may have seen the uh, Left Behind series of films. And in the film, you see clothes just left. 
planes flying, Christian pilot, all of a sudden, he's gone. <laughs> In an instant, if we are alive, I mean, imagine that. And, and, and we see in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it's going to happen in a blink. So you're here one moment, you blink, and you're in the presence of God. Oh, I want to scream, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mash up the speakers. That is the reality. Oh, please. Bro, turn down my game. Beg you, let me just get some volume. Please. I'm telling you, in a blink, you can be on your job, doing your thing in front of that class, in, in, the, in, the, in, in front of the computer. You can be in uni thinking, oh, this lecture, man, am I even going to pass this class? This thing's hurting my head. And blink, and you're in, you're in glory. You're in the presence of God. Somebody say hallelujah, amen, or something. Come on, man. You know, it's serious. This is the reality. We're going to be changed. And our loved ones who have departed and, and gone to, we're going to see them. And we're going to see Jesus and the saints of old. And we are going to see the Father. Who no one has seen but Christ. Wow. In a blink, you know. This is what's killing me. In a blink, and you're just, you're here one blink. And, and you know, you have to understand that a blink, what was trying to be communicated is that it's a fraction of a second. If you've if you got a, 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 a clicking, a ticking clock, right? I've done this last night as well. <laughs> and you see how many times you can blink before each tick. You'll find that you can blink multiple times before each tick of the clock. That's fractions of a second every time you blink. In one of those fractions, you'll be gone. Don't laugh at me, Kayla, because this is real talk out here. Listen. In a blink, we'll be changed. Are you encouraged? You feel confident? Don't turn me up again, you know, brother. I don't need it. <laughs> and so we can be assured. No believer will be left out. And you see, the thing is, how does that give us assurance? Because we look at ourselves and we're saying, I'm not even worthy to be called a Christian. We look at our own hearts and we're like, I flopped again. I don't represent. I'm not a faithful witness. I don't read enough, I don't pray enough, I don't serve enough, I don't evangelize enough. Ah, if there was any chance that anyone's going to get left behind, I'm definitely in that number. On the real, that's how we feel, isn't it? But grace, the same grace by which we're saved, undeserved favor, we could not earn it. We could not warrant it. We could do nothing to merit it. Yet Jesus granted us salvation. The Father gives us salvation because of Jesus, not us. So as, it, as, as somebody once said, God's good outweighs our bad. So you've got people trying to do good works to outweigh their bad. But that. God's good, Christ on the scales, outweighs our bad every time. 
And so we have the assurance. We have the assurance because of grace. So no believer will be left out. Now there is a PS. There is a little kind of footnote in this statement here. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And over the, the generations, as people have looked at the manuscripts and attempted to translate that, there have been slight variants because it's a difficult Greek text to translate. And as they've tried to deal with the variations of understanding, it's been appreciated that there's an underlying message here that says, not only will this be true for believers, but it has truth for the unbeliever in their context. Now you're thinking, what, what in the world does that mean? So, John 5, 25 to 29, Jesus said it best. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 5, 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see that? So actually, it clarifies the fact that every individual, believer or unbeliever, is an eternal being and has an eternal destiny. And those who are believers have a destiny of life ahead, and those who are unbelievers have a destiny of judgment. Now, let me just, before I even kind of get further into that, just clarify something. Some of you might be looking at this and saying, but oh gosh, I'm back to that kind of insecure, uncertain mode because it says, all who have done good. All who have done good to the resurrection of life. Oh, have I, done, have, have I done enough good? How do you know when you've done good? Or enough good? Or more good to do? Well, Jesus clarifies the point to the same people in chapter 6 of John. I'll take it from verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your belly full of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Notice, do not labor, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So he says, look, you guys are working hard to try and keep up with me so you can get more food. But don't work at that. Don't work for that food. 
work for the food that comes from God. Now, I'm trying to abbreviate this for the sake of time. Jesus is the bread of life. And as we feed on Jesus, we receive strength. We receive life. And so in the context, and if you look at the whole context, this is what he's communicating, that if you're going to give your energies and efforts, give your energies and efforts to receive him and feed on him. He goes on to clarify this. They understood what he meant when you look at verse 28. So they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, so if we want to do those things, if we want to apply ourselves, if we want to give effort to those things that will cause God to give us life, that food that you talk about, what should we do? Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Hold on a second. So you're saying that the only thing that I have to do is to believe in him. That's, that's like 613 laws of the Old Testament. So all of, no, 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 just, just believe on him? Okay. All right then. They fully understood that it meant to believe on Jesus. Because in verse 30, they say to Jesus, So then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? So Jesus knew what they needed, and as he communicated, they understood it, that what they needed to do was to believe on Jesus. So, it then corresponds with the fact that we are saved by faith. Amen? We're justified by faith. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so when it talks about doing good and being raised unto life, in the context of what Jesus is saying, the good that we do is to receive that faith from God, because faith is a gift. We receive it through the gospel, as Romans 10 tells us. It's not, it's not even like we've got to work it up, go Jim, I'm going to get some faith today. No, we receive faith through the ministry of the word, and we apply faith. And that's the work that we do. We apply that faith. And through faith, we are raised unto life. Amen? And so we see also, and this is a point I want to underline, that all who die will be raised. All who die will be raised. And one of the reasons I want to underline it at this point is because I'm not assuming that everyone here is in right relationship with God. And the reality is that if you're not in right relationship with God because you have turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone to be saved, you trust that you can only be right with God through submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For he alone is the Savior the rescuer. And if you haven't done that, that you're, then you're in a position where you will die. Everyone. 
faces death. We live in finite bodies. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. And yet, if an individual dies in their sin, huh, well, you will be raised in the last day to face judgment because you are an eternal being. This is highlighted to us in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, powerful and humble, known and lowly, all standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so, as much as those who are God's, those who are Christ's, have the glorious expectation of a resurrection unto life, For the individual who has not submitted to Christ's lordship and received him as savior, you also have an expectation which is not glorious. It's woeful. And you'll stand before the great white throne. The throne being white hot from the anger of God towards sin, that there would be any who would defy his generous offer of salvation through his son, which he grants, which he gives freely and willingly, his own son who he had mutilated for our sin so that we, and would still spurn that offer. How arrogant, how proud ultimately that's what sin is for us to do what we want instead of what God wants and in our text hidden in there is this underlying sense that this resurrection is true for all the focus in our context in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the righteous are unto life and God's offer of salvation goes out to all. The gospel is to be preached in every nation. It's for all people, regardless of color, creed, regardless of background, culture, regardless of all of these things. The gospel is for all who will believe. And so if you've yet to surrender to Christ, 
or you think you've surrendered to Christ, but you have a lack of assurance in your heart because the fruit in keeping with repentance is not evident in your life, then it is my duty to instruct you to repent, to turn to Jesus, the Jesus who said, all who come to me, I will not turn away. And receive life. Turn away from your sin. Self-centered living. And submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And enjoy the expectation of the resurrection unto life. And so we see that communicated. And then we also see in verse 54. That at the point of that resurrection... Salvation will be fulfilled completely. So we've been justified. We are being sanctified. It's a process of sanctification, being changed day by day into the image of Christ. And yet there will come that point in time when we shall be glorified. And the process will be complete. And death will be swallowed up in victory. This death, this conqueror that has conquered all people from all nations. This beast that swallows people. I remember where I was when Elvis died. Share my age. I remember big people in the house. Because I was a little person at that time, trust me. Big people in the house like... No, Lord, you hear Elvis dead? Oh gosh, turn up the television. I remember where I was when Michael Jackson died. The king of pop, who seemed to live this perpetual childish life. I mean, he, he, he lived in a theme park, literally. who always seemed to have this kind of childish and even innocent way with him. You remember when he died? I remember where I was when I heard that Michael Jackson died. Driving down in um, Pearly. Thinking, nah, this is a madness. This brother is getting ready to come and tour O2 and, you know, do his... his Make some money again, finally, after they bankrupt him. Gone. Um, there's this guy who died yesterday, isn't it? Um, the Russian guy who was friends with people in high places. They call him an oligarch. What in the world is an oligarch? It's a, a oil money. Like, he was rich. Like, that means he had enough money. That's all we need to know anyway. It's as close to it as we'll get. <laughs> and he had, he had security everywhere he went because he lived in fear of his life. Every move, three, four guys. He had ex-Mossad agents working for him as security. And they found him dead in his house. 
And at this stage, at least last night when I was listening to the news, it didn't even seem as if anyone was involved in his death. But that actually, he may have even taken his own life. Can you imagine that? All that money, all that protection, death still grips and kills him by one means or another. And as Paul here quotes the Old Testament, he quotes a few verses. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 5, where it alludes to the nature of death as if it were a person, as if it were a beast, saying, therefore, Sheol, uh, a Jewish term for death, or the dead, or the place of the dead, has enlarged its appetite. Feed me! And opened its mouth beyond measure. Remember seeing that advertisement when the, 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 the thing used to open its head back till its mouth was just like 180 degrees open? That's death right there. Enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. You see, death takes everyone. No one is exempt. And in Hosea 13, in both of these chapters, God's dealing with the, the sin of Israel, the people named as the people of God, but yet whose hearts were far from him. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from his eyes. And so this is talking about God executing judgment through death. And God calling on death to unleash its plagues and to, and to, and to release its sting in judgment of sin. And yet, as Paul reflects on that and the promise given in Isaiah chapter 25 that says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so in Paul's quotation, he refers to 
these three scriptures, Isaiah 5, Hosea 13, Isaiah chapter 25, and in skillfully weaving from those verses, he paints the picture of God's gracious fulfillment of salvation. The same God who executed judgment through death has now swallowed up death. Swallowed up in the victory of Christ. No longer having to fear death. And he highlights the fact that, okay, death, you had victory. Death, you had the sting. Past tense, Jesus is risen. And he, he emphasizes, verse 56, the sting of death. Now, you imagine you've got a, a bee or a wasp, and this, people say, oh, I got stung by a bee. Actually, you got stung by a bee, but it was the stinger of the bee that stung you. The, the little pointed barb that he jokes in you. Hmm? So the sting of death is sin. The means by which we are connected with death is sin. Why do people die? Because all people sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he who fulfilled the law perfectly broke the power of sin and overcame death. And so we rejoice. Our third point of assurance, death and sin, is defeated. We don't have to fear death. And this is why, at the top of the text, Paul doesn't even use the term death when referring to believers he says, we shall not all sleep. It's like when Jesus was going to Lazarus. And he says, look, I must go because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples are like, duh. Well, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to wake up in it. So why should we waste our time and go and check Lazarus? And Jesus turns around, he's dead. <laughs> but for us as believers, we don't even look at our transition, our departure as death, is sleep. Now, it's not soul sleep as some sects and cults would teach, that when a person dies, any individual dies, they just go, they just sleep, cease to have any kind of consciousness. Their mind stops working, their will becomes inoperative, they have no sense of emotion, they're just like in a state of sleep until the resurrection. No, because the scripture tells us that those who die in sin will be held in hell on remand, awaiting that great white throne judgment. So hell's not even the final destination for the, those who die in sin. And for the believer, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we will be with the Lord. If I were to die right now, then I would go straight into the presence of God without my glorified body. Without my glorified body. Just my, my spirit immaterial individual being will be there. And at the resurrection, my spirit being will be united with my brand new glorified body. 
and then it's on. And so, we give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Well, we go hard till we go home. Hmm. We have one life. It soon will pass. And only what you do for Christ will last. You have one life and it soon will pass. Yet only what you do for Christ will last. And so I, how is your mind fixed on living for Jesus? You see, we face struggles in life. We face struggles with our own sin. My anger just caused me to flop so many times. I just lose the plot. And maybe you're a person who struggles with anger. Maybe you're a person who struggles with impatience. It's like my brother Philip gave me this quote. We were talking about just some great work that the Lord's doing in his life. And he says, you know, as we go through the struggles of life, the Lord teaches us patience. Some of us need that because we're like the individual that said, Lord, I want patience and I want it now. <laughs> so I said, amen, brother, it's true. So as we go on this journey and we're being conformed to the image of Christ, are we committed? Are we focused with the end in sight? They say to athletes, look, when you're running, you run past the finish line. You don't run to the finish line. You run through the finish line. You have the end in sight. In order that you might finish well. You see, whatever it is we struggle with, you might be struggling with concerns over your children. You might be struggling with marriage, getting married or staying married, whichever side of the fence you're on. You might be struggling with purpose in life. What, what am I supposed to do with myself? Well, you can be encouraged that, look, you're able to give your all to the cause of Christ, not considering yourself and even your own safety, because ultimately, there is a resurrection, and we can have confidence that we will be with the Lord. Amen? And so Paul says, be steadfast, steadfast, rock solid, consistent, persistent, committed, continuing, immovable. Nothing can shake you. Nothing can rock you and, and put you off course and off track. Always abounding. Not just getting by as a Christian, but abounding. In the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. You do not labor in vain. Sometimes we feel like that kid in the class that always does their homework, always comes in on time, always gets good grades, 
but no one really seems to notice. The kids that are always making up noise and getting in trouble, they always get attention. Or those ones that are like A-class students and they just get straight A-stars. Or they get, but I'm just kind of like a regular Joe and I'm, I'm doing, but sometimes I just think, really, is it worth it? And you might kind of feel like that about your Christian life, but you can be assured your labor's not in vain. The Lord has called you for such a time as this to live for his glory and ultimately, although by his grace we arrive at the resurrection, we'll even be rewarded. We'll be rewarded. Although the scriptures tell us that we'll have the wisdom to cast our rewards before Christ. Standing in the presence of God, standing in his glory, recognizing where we are and how we got there, only by grace. <laughs> rewards? Are you nuts? Take that. I don't deserve that. I only got here because of you. Jesus, it's all yours. You are my reward. Praise be to God. Who causes us always to triumph in Christ Jesus. And so, as I ask the guys to return um, to lead us in a final song, may we be assured, may we be assured as we hear this declaration, this positive declaration of, of God's intent to provide us a resurrection May it give us confidence to live for Christ. Sometimes we kind of can slip into the mode of, of just life and feel like everything is all about career. Everything is all about money and, you know, that's what I need to do to have security and to, to make sure that, and I can kind of do the things for Jesus on the side, and, but it's all about career and it's all about money. Well, as they say, there's never been one person on their deathbed who said, I wish I spent more time in the office. I wish I, wish I just got that project completed at work. I wish I just won that bid. Those reports were finished as they prepared to leave this life. At whatever point we leave this life, career and money are going to be the last things on our mind. Let us not allow them to consume us. Because ultimately that's idolatry. We're putting our trust in something other than Christ. And so may we be fully assured, granted confidence that God is good. Shall we stand?
Father, we thank you for the confident assurance that you give us through Christ Jesus. Jesus is risen, and all who are yours will be raised unto eternal life. This resurrection for us is certain in view of the certainty of Christ's resurrection. We thank you for giving us uh, such a validation, such an affirmation of our future and hope in you. That there will come that time when we will no longer be limited by the weaknesses of these frail bodies, but we shall be changed. And the perishable shall put on imperishable, and the mortal shall put on immortality, and we shall live forever with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Because it is through you that this is all possible. It is because of you and your goodness. Help us to go hard, to run hard with all that is in us for your glory and your pleasure. Not considering ourselves, even to the, to the extent of not considering our own safety, because ultimately, it doesn't matter how hard it gets, things are going to be all right. Things will be better at the resurrection. And Lord, my prayer is for those who are, are yet to surrender to you as Lord and Savior. Thank you for your mercy in sustaining them to hear this word. And I pray, Lord, that you would just grant repentance today, Lord, as they reflect on their position and receive eternal life through you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.